and one and two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and today I am joined by Rufus Pollock. He is the founder and president of the Open Knowledge Foundation, which is a network of not-for-profits in dozens of countries that help to pioneer the open data movement and continue to create a more open world. They are responsible for creating the Open Data Index, Open Spending, which is the largest open database of public financial information in the world, and CCAN, the world's leading open source data portal platform. And today, Rufus will tell us the backstory on how the Open Knowledge Foundation was created. Hello, Rufus, and thanks for joining us. A pleasure. In my research for this episode, I heard you talk about how the story of William Tyndale was your inspiration for creating Open Knowledge or the Open Knowledge Foundation. Do you mind taking a few moments and telling us that story? William Tyndale was the the translator of the Bible into English from Latin. The first, not quite, almost the first uh, translation right after in the period of the Reformation beginning. um, He was inspired by Luther, um, who obviously translated the Bible into German. And Tyndale ended up paying with his life for this. He ended up um, executed in Villevolden, near, near modern day, you know, uh, in Belgium, basically near, near Brussels, in I think um, 1534, um, and as a heretic. And the book, even the translations that he created of the Bible were burned in London, you know, as heretical. And the point, I think, of that story was that Tyndale was, in that sense, an, a knowledge freedom fighter. You know, he, was, he, was, he wasn't fighting uh, physically. He wasn't a violent in any way. In fact, very probably committed in some ways to peace. But he was a, a real stand, a real commitment for information to be free. And in this case, for him, the piece of information that would have been most important as a, as a very serious Christian, the Bible, the, the word... The word, not quite the word of God, but kind of the story of God, the, the New Testament, the Old Testament. And um, it may seem incredible to us today, but this was such a radical act in that point. The Catholic Church had a complete monopoly on the Bible. It didn't want it translated into everyday language because that would mean that basically that the ordinary man and woman could understand the Bible, could empower themselves in that regard, and therefore could question what they were being told. And, and famously, and it may be apocryphal, but the story told about Tyndale is that, um, you know, he's he kind of suggesting doing this and someone says, you know, um, why would you want, you know, the, the plowboy, you know, to know this? And he says, you know, once I've finished, the plowboy will know more of the Bible than you, you ignorant kind of <laughs> um, priest or whatever. And, and it was radical. I mean, it was, it was, a lot of things, I mean, just very fundamentally, for example, a lot of the power and wealth of the Catholic Church even came from things, um, from sacraments, from activities that um, had no basis in the Bible, you know, um, um, indulgences, for example, famously. And so it was, a ve- it really did, um, it really was the beginning of the Reformation and this huge seismic shift in power in Europe. So that, that I think the thing for me about Tyndale were, First of all, that knowledge was power. 
it was an incredible demonstration that that really was the case. That also that it kind of, I guess it sometimes also took courage. In this case, he ended up dying in a way for his, for, you know, for, for what he really believed in, in the sense, and not even believed in, but simply the belief that other people should have the choice. Because he wasn't necessarily saying that you wouldn't be a Catholic um, or whatever, but it would be that you would at least have the, 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 the ability to read these precious words for yourself. Finally, to, by the way, just to say, obviously, also, Tyndale's translation lives down to us because it was a very beautiful translation, a big inspiration for the King James. And words we still remember today, the wonderful English that we have of the King James Version of the Bible that lives on in common day speech you know, in the beginning was, you know, et cetera. So anyway, so that's the story of Tyndale. Yeah. I, I, I love that story because uh, for, it's like he was the first accessible or one of the first accessibility advocates in translating a Bible, which was reserved for a very small audience that understood and could read Latin and, yes. and brought it to a larger audience and that power distribution. And that's why I'm so fascinated about open knowledge and, and that work that you created. So as we were saying in the introduction, Open Knowledge was launched in 2004, but I'm wondering about the work that took place leading up to it. And let's start maybe with some of the people that helped you put the idea together, or maybe some of the people that connected you with other people to get the idea going. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's two, there's two things. I, I mean, first of all, I think, I think it's great because I think acknowledging uh, uh, the, those who contributed to us is really great thing to do in a really great process. I mean, I, I could say several things. First. first of all, there's just a huge debt for me, um, kind of, I guess you'd say intellectually, I'd say spiritually, and not in the spiritual religion, but like in where the spirit of things came from with the free and open source software movement. So a lot of things around open knowledge were simply in a, some senses what I could call a port of ideas from free and open source software. I, I'd started when I went to I went to Cambridge University in 1998. I'm about to be 40 this year, and I was 18. And I'd never I'd wanted to use the internet as a kid. I I, I was a bit of a geek, I guess. I wasn't really geeky, but I but I, was, I lived on a farm, and I was like, I guess around 92, 93, I'd heard of this thing. I got PC magazine. I heard of the internet, and I was begging my parents, and they were kind of like, No, it's they didn't really not dial up. Basically, it was no. So I didn't get on the internet. So I got to Cambridge to university. And I, I started, you know, there, I came across, I had a friend who was in computer science, kind of gave me, told, turned, told me about Google. You know, everyone was using AltaVista at that. I started using Google. And I think there was, a, I got into software to some extent out of that. I got, I was always very interested in knowledge and, and information um, uh, as a kid. Um, so one of the things I, you know, was doing was I was organizing various databases and I added that into Linux. And so around 2000 or 2000, when I taught myself, I programmed in like basic when I was 12. I taught myself kind of programming again. And so out of that, I started to be exposed to what was happening. I think also looking back, it was a really, it was a period in the late 90s when free and open source software was moving more into the mainstream than it had been at least in, in, in I don't mean in like mainstream, mainstream, but in technology than it had been. And so I was very lucky in that regard. I came across Postgre, a lot of bunch of other stuff. And so that was a big inspiration. So like the first projects at Open Knowledge were like the Open Definition was a direct Port initially of open source definition written by Bruce Perrins and others. And it was saying, okay, we can apply the same principles from software to knowledge, to data, to content. And, and, and this, these principles will be important. I think that was something that was important. So that was, that was that huge inspiration there. 
more specifically, I encountered a few people early on, actually particularly in Cambridge, that there was, Cambridge was sort of the center of um, what I would now call like, I don't know, digital rights or information activism. So there were a bunch, there was a bunch of group called the UK Campaign for Digital Rights. It doesn't exist anymore. In fact, it didn't exist for very long. Um, it sort of stopped operation about 2003, 2004. But I got I, uh, involved in that. And I, I was just very like, I was once, I, you know, and, and there was another guy who kind of, I, I mean, I really, I really, my journey, I mean, actually going all the way back, my journey began with an argument about the WTO. Um, so it's, people don't remember now, 20 years on, but back in the late 90s and the early 2000s was a big period of, of Globe, anti-globalization protests. I mean, what you could look at is some attempt for the progressive left to have some agenda again, mm-hmm. <laughs> having been bereft of one for quite a long time, maybe still to today. But basically, there was the battle for Seattle in 99. There was, you know, uh, Sorry, what's the was battle a, for Seattle? The battle for Seattle was, um, there was, a, I think it was a, a G7 or a G8 meeting uh, or w, some kind of big meeting, and there was a big protest, and then there were fights, and you know, and this happened also in Genoa. And someone got shot in Genoa, and I had this big argument with a kind of person I knew, and she was like, you know, these organizations are awful. They're the dev, you know, like she was kind of definitely on the more like you know this, you know, radical side of things. And I was like, oh, I'll go read about the WTO because I didn't know very much. And I came to view the WTO was great. You know, I was like, WTO is actually a really good idea. And I wrote my first website saying that, um, actually writing up a lot of stuff. But my point about it was that out of that, I did come across WTO and I came across TRIPS. I came across the trade-related aspects of intellectual property, which is one of the three agreements of WTO. And I was like, why is this in the WTO? Well, WTO is about free trade. Free trade's a good idea in theory, at least as I was reading my economics. But TRIPS is not about that. It's about IP. I, I started meeting various people and that's how I met. And, and, that's, and I kind of opened knowledge I started reading various work, but I really was, you know, the other inspiration of Binion was Apache Software Foundation. I and mean, we actually had one of the founders, uh, one of the board members that be on our board, Ben Laurie, for a while. But basically, Open Knowledge itself, Open Knowledge Foundation, when I found it, I started doing advocacy with pretty much every group in IP activism you could find, which weren't very much at that point. It was Creative Commons, Foundation for Free Information Infrastructure, Friends of Creative Domain. I worked with Corey Doctorow. Corey Doctorow was in London at that point because he was working with EFF. And I, I spent a lot of time with Corey and he was definitely an influence on me in that regard. Yeah, so, and, and, and so Open Knowledge Foundation kind of came out of that. And, and it actually had a very pragmatic beginning, which was I wanted to do projects and I suddenly realized, I kind of was like, okay, just like the, it was the idea was like Apache Software Foundation. You need a home where people would do projects and I was particularly actually the source of it was I was involved in a campaigning organization at that time, the UK Campaign for Digital Rights. And I couldn't get access to their website to change something because it was running on someone's personal machine. They didn't really have a legal setup. They didn't really have an institutional setup. They didn't have a bank account. And it was very, you know, that was like a real, I was like, oh, this is really annoying. And one thing we should have is some organization which could be a home institutionally to do stuff at the beginning. And that was kind of the beginning of it. Yeah. So you, you really had that mindset from jump that you were going to register as a not-for-profit, get a board yeah. of directors, find some funding and things like that. Can you speak a little bit perhaps on how you were able to bring those people together and sell them on the idea of what you were trying to do? Because from at least what yeah. I'm reading is, is you, you were very successful from the very beginning. 
No, no, that's, okay. <laughs> that's not, if only that were true. Um, so at the beginning, like there were no funders. I mean, basically I kind of self-funded it in the sense that I, I was doing a PhD full time. I actually was doing a PhD um, when I found it. I did a master's and I, 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 done, I started really getting involved in stuff in 2002, 2003, and I found it in 2004. And at the beginning, I mean, we had, I, there was no money. I mean, when I say self-funded, it was like 5,000 pounds. You know, I try to find money elsewhere or do other things. And we did some stuff. There were no funders. Um, we had no board. I mean, I found an organization, an institution, but I, I did, it was true. I kind of almost at the beginning, I was like, okay, I'll have something. I will found a legal entity so that it can exist and it can own things independently. That was, I kind of figured from this very short experience as an organization, it was a real, people get a job, you know, particularly volunteer-based, people got jobs and suddenly you couldn't get access to the server because they were busy during the day. So I was going like, that won't happen. But at the beginning, I did it entirely pretty much I, I, was, I also, I should say, I met some other people. Actually, I'm now remembering. I also, there was a, a very interesting, if you look at the history of it, there were a wave of people coming out of the idealism, coming to the end of the idealism of the two 1990s. So if you look back in this area, a lot of, it, it's kind of odd actually, because a lot of the hope and a lot of the even ideas were, came out of the late 90s. And, you know, people like now that well people still talk about but Lessig's gone to the Lessig there was Boyle you know there's Johai Benkler this set of intellectual figures and a load of others you know I, I mean it, but you know there was this kind of excitement this is a new frontier this is this opportunity things will be different you know anyone could solve and it, you know it was right you know things it was the old guard even tech you know even in business the old guard was getting replaced but by 2004, that wave had kind of crashed to some extent. And I, I, the first event I ever ran big time was I got to run an event in partnership with some other people called the World Summit on, found the World Summit on Free Information Infrastructures, which was also Open Knowledge, what was Open Knowledge Conference number one in the autumn, I think, of 2004 or 2000, early 2005. And these were people who'd done like free Wi-Fi, who'd done free mapping. These, some of these people helped start OpenStreetMap. They were kind of disillusioned by this point. Disillusioned that their efforts were going nowhere? Yeah, well, the, the dream of the late 90s. Like, mm. hey, you know, some people actually thought, you're not going to need, we're going to get mesh networks. We're not going to have an ISP. We're not going to have the man anymore telling us what we can connect, our, you know, connect to. And in the sense, you weren't getting that. You were getting broadband. You weren't getting these free Wi-Fi networks that people imagined. You know, even think of mobile. I mean, People just, you know, in a way you could say it's the right, like, people take for granted that mobile is a closed ecosystem. You've got to understand how inspired people were by the internet at that point. You know, look at how open was going to take over the world. And look what's happened. The next big, internet, the next big network, what happened? It was closed. It was Facebook. And it wasn't mm -hmm. open. And you've got to understand people saw it coming. They didn't, you remember 2004, Facebook has only just got founded, I think, or 2005, you know, in a dorm. But People could see what was coming with YouTube. I remember being, you know, people thought, you know, look, you've got to understand most of the media systems we have have ended up being monopolized and controlled again in a way that those people, I don't necessarily agree with all, you know, or did, did, but I had a lot of sympathy. We've had a, we haven't got a lot of free information infrastructure. If you actually look at the yeah. infrastructure, most of it's controlled by a very few number of uh, entities um, in that way. And a lot of those people were sort of like, not totally anarchists, but they wanted anarchists in a positive sense. They wanted more, in, in a way that, that Tyndale was an anarchist in the sense that he wanted anarchos. 
he didn't want he didn't want chaos he wanted order but he wanted freedom he didn't want someone telling him what he could or couldn't read so for me i was also meeting these kind of people i was very into joe there's a um, joe walsh who helped start open street map and who was helped organize wispy uh world summit of free information infrastructures and that period I mean, what I could see that I wrote in one of the, ver- the first posts for Open Knowledge, and I look back and I think that was really like, I was like, well done, Rufus. You know, that I saw. And even how I wrote, I mean, the original documents of Open Knowledge, you kind of remain there till today, like the founding principles. What I could see was that, that technology would change things. That was kind of obvious, but more specifically, like, that the cost, the key point was an economic one, that there was a radical shift in the cost of, production and dissemination and the logic of that has still not really been worked out to this day like in the sense of what that will mean for society and power it's interesting because one of the problems at least being toronto based and i I run sort of a a, a meetup group and we we do have a little bit of clout but we're definitely not funded is some of the conversations that i have with sort of international counterparts who because they are in a, 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 a jurisdiction, a country that has a severe democratic deficit, they, they, they seem to have stronger infrastructure. They seem to have funding from larger organizations and things of that nature. And in, in the Western countries, it seems as though that there's, because that democratic deficit is not present, there does not seem to be as much of a need for organizations like, say, Open Knowledge was in its infancy in 2003 and eventually yeah. in 2004, and some of mine. Do, do you agree with that? Well, yeah, so, so to kind of just, you asked me a question, I should finish you, but so one is just to actually say, we didn't have any money. The first funding we ever got, I think, was in about 2008 or nine. And we built like all of, pretty much all the stuff was like, I doubt I got some, you know, there's the money, I'm trying to think, but yeah, it was money was just like, I either did stuff in my spare time or I got some of my money from my PhD or other work I did and, and put it into stuff. Um, but it wasn't much. And so almost all the original stuff we built was based on volunteer effort or our time. So real, any, I think the first funding was 2008, 2009, and it was very small. It grew quite rapidly. I mean, we hit the wave at that point. You know, the thing is, it's like surfing. You wait and wait and wait. And then the wave, you know, you're like, hey, this is really important. This is really important. Really, and then suddenly like the wave comes. <laughs> and in that regard, we were there when the wave of open kind of, when open data came in 2000. 2010. I mean, looking the wave has fallen now. You know, like the other answer to you right now is that open data is not cool. It stopped being cool around. Now it's AI, and also mm-hmm. open data became in like many countries became kind of institutionalized. It's become business as usual in government, and it's not a. And I, I think, I mean, I could come to more in this cool. I mean, I kind of, I I have a view that open knowledge generally, open knowledge foundation should in a, kind of renew itself at this point. I think. I think there's two paths to go, which is there's a kind of institutionalization of it, which is like, okay, how do you do open government? How do you do open government? How do you open data? Which is almost like training and you kind of become a think tank and you train people. And that's great. And that's useful. And there's a much more radical, uh, or, I mean, or much more innovative, I want to say, agenda. And that's not to criticize that. That's very important, in, you know, institutionalization. You know, to kind of say, um, to kind of come back to your question of like funding, I think, Yes. I mean, I think also there's a really big point related to Tyndale, which is, and I say that around, I'm not that interested in transparency. I'm not actually that interested in open government, actually. I'm, <laughs> um, 
And I never was. <laughs> I took a load of money from funders. I mean, not in any bad way, but like we did lots of work, but that's what funding was for. But I don't, I don't think it was ever, it wasn't really my interest as much. I mean, I had it to some extent, which was, I, I think, in a, you know, or at least the true, I wanted to be empowered. I wanted to be able to have the information to work things out for myself in many areas. But I was never so interested in government transparency. I, I guess I always had this bad example, which was I had a friend, I had a, someone older in my life, you know, like a relative who supported the Iraq war, like the, the 2003 invasion of Iraq. And not that I think that was Tessio terrible, or it turned out to be a terrible idea, but it wasn't, you know, but I, I, didn't, I didn't support it. And I remember there was a lot of data showing, you know, I was like showing them the New York Review of Book articles showing that, you know, there weren't weapons of mass destruction before the invasion happened, and it had made no difference. And so I have a very, I'm a kind of skeptic, information matters and transparency matters, but it's quite limited in the way it matters. Um, and so my interest in a way was always a bit more economic and like what I'd call the kind of like substructures of our society, which was that power and wealth flow from, from, from how you structure your economy and, and, and who owns the economy, who owns the information age. And that is a much bigger agenda than transparency. Now, unfortunately, it was an agenda that no one, even now, I don't really see a lot of funders being interested in. Which agenda are you referring to right now? The transparency agenda? Or the, um, no, no, no. The agenda about inequality, power and wealth in an information age. And the really start of open knowledge, even going back to the WTO, it was kind of like, well, okay, who owns information? You know, my, my, you know even, even going back in the open debates about digital rights, which is kind of the information rights, you know, if you like. There's kind of two groups. There's civil rights groups, which are often about privacy. They're about, to some degree, um, they're, they're about, they're, yeah, they're often privacy, often about, maybe about transparency, maybe about freedom of information. And then there's another group which you could call consumer rights, which, is, which was more about, hey, IP is, is a problem, because it leads to you ripping off consumers, you know, or monopolies. Um, and I, I personally, the, the space is very dominated in at least the advocacy space by digital rights, or like civil rights discourse, transparency and privacy. And I actually think they're not very interesting issues. I don't think the story about, I don't think there's something very new about those issues. They've been around a very long time and the digital age doesn't actually make them that different, in my view. And this is a controversial position, but I, you know, most of the people around in the digital, you know, like EFF or many other groups are highly occupied. There's a high correlation between them feeling about privacy stuff or whatever. And I think that that's kind of not that important. Um, well, let me ask you a question real quick on that, because you, I mean, obviously I'm not as well uh, uh, accomplished as you are, but one of the things that are problems that I'm facing with a lot of the times with this conversation, because I believe in sort of the values yeah. that you're representing in terms of information is power and we need to redistribute the information so everyone has the same sort of foothold. But along those lines, yeah. that's a very hard sell. And you almost need to put sort of sugar on top of the medicine and, and Trojan horse it a little bit through things like transparency, accountability, the values of what open gov and open data, privacy sells. Like privacy is something that the general public can, yeah. can, t- can munch on and work with. Yes, yes and no. It's a very, it's a very, it, there's two points. One is that I don't think, I, I feel, I'm not kind of egalitarian about the information, but I think 
people, so first of all, in terms of classic funding space, maybe, so let's just step back. So one is, you've got to maybe really understand, I, I want to kind of then just talk you through with like the, the theory of change, I mean, just very quickly, because, and you maybe could put the slide or, or something in if you want in the, in, in, in the document, but basically there's a story, the theory of change around transparency is just not a very great story when you actually look at it. So it kind of goes, I'm going to have openness of information. I'm going to have some more insight, maybe, and more information out of that. And then people are going to, you know, basically, if it's governmental, people are going to take some collective action, go and lobby the government, or maybe there's going to be a decision maker who just wants to know the answer, and that's great. Or maybe it's individual action. You know, maybe it's something that doesn't require, it's not about the gun, it's about more like just transparency, like, oh, if I know what time the buses travel, I can schedule a better way to get to work. And then, then out of that, you kind of get to the accountability. Somehow better decisions or better outcomes happen and there's an impact, right? So the story is openness, insight. People use that not information. They then, if there's a collective action problem, they do some stuff collectively and then you get some better outcome and impact. And there's a lot of obstacles there. You know, you can have a load of information and no one, no one uses it. Have the information, people are using it, but they can't come together politically to enact change, which is very common, right? No, it's not the end of the world, but it's just, it's, there's a big gap between what I'd call transparency and accountability, basically. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, I want to emphasize something. I wrote a long post about this in 2012, where I said, listen, let's not oversell things. This might be cheap to do. Transparency still might be, it won't overnight get rid of corruption, make you run faster or jump higher as that ad, that bright ad went, but it will, it's still valuable. But it ain't immediate accountability. And, and this, this is kind of a, you know, it's why I was always sort of an open government skeptic a little bit because, not skeptic, but I was like, hey, yes, it's useful, but there'll be a limited, this is a hard thing about hard things. Like human beings enacting political change or group change is just a hard thing. Now then there's a different theory of change. I want to contrast this, not, not that it's like in place of, this is more like called the economic theory. So rather than information transparency, it's like information as ownership, information as economic power or empowerment. Yeah. And this story goes, okay, on the left, I've got openness. Now, what does openness mean? It means very fundamentally, it means, hey, anyone can access and use and build on this information. So that, that transforms and, and it's the difference from Tintel. Tintel is very much the story of transparency, which is great. And it's important sometimes. It's sometimes the case that if only we have the information, the oppressive regime will fall or whatever. But, you know, it's normally a bit more complicated. But this is more like saying, okay, the printing press unleashed innovation in some degree, unleashed knowledge. It unleashed empowered people kind of in some sense economically. Except here we're talking about something much more radical or much more exciting. It's like a revolution in in access to information. And what does that change? It changes that cost, that ability, because you're combining it with costless copying, this move from ants to bits and costless copying, this really changes the allocation of power and wealth and opportunity. And what that impacts on is fairness and equality, it impacts on growth, it impacts ultimately then on opportunity, security and wealth, and finally on political stability and societal well-being. And you know, to illustrate this, I'll illustrate this in one very concrete way. But, you know, so you get the level of impact, but it's subtle. So what's the biggest 
reason for the election of Donald Trump in 2016, which is, <laughs> I, think, I think, one of the most seismic political, not just because of Donald Trump himself, but the, the kind of, the, the shift in the representation of power in politics and the fact also that he was elected with working class voters, you might say, blue collar voters in like Pennsylvania. Whether, you know, whatever you think, that's like a really major thing that happened. And I would say the biggest cause of that is the, the information revolution. Like, and I don't mean Twitter. I don't mean the, the, the Facebook stuff. I mean that starting in the 1960s and 70s, the information economy blew up. And the information economy was monopolized from the very beginning because it was combined with patents and copyright because that was the way to pay innovators for what they did. So you start, you see, you know, look at the famous companies who, like, they're now getting replaced, but like, when was Intel founded? You know, 1968. When was, you know, Apple founded? I think, you know, well, sorry, when was Microsoft? 76. You know, Apple 77 or something like that. You know, Oracle 76. You know, all these companies, that's when they're founded and they become these dominant behemoths. And we now have really good data that the growth of inequality in the United States now has other causes. I'm not saying it's the only cause. I would say actually the, one of the primary cause is not, you know, oh, our wealth policy or evil Republicans changing the thing. Yes, that's contributed. But the single biggest driver of growing inequality in Western countries is the digital economy running on these old rules of monopoly rights, of patents mm. and copyrights. And it's like you've put together this explosive mixture. You have costless copying, which, is, which suddenly means that you basically have one or a few firms dominate in a given market because you've got a market where once you've made the product, you can give it to everyone for free. You might charge them, but your cost of supply is nothing. And, and that's, that is the single biggest reason that those people are voting for Donald Trump. If you look at the numbers, you have these classic numbers, the bottom 40 or 60% of American society, it was poorer in 2016 than they were in 1999. And those are the people who the robots are coming for in terms of their jobs, you know, in that sense. And it's, it's very, very, and who owns the robots? Well, it's not the robot itself, it's the software and that software's owned. So when I'm talking about this issue, it's like way bigger than transparency. I'm saying that we've really got a chance to change the rules of the information age and to deal with that massively growing inequality and then this political instability that comes with it, the, the, you know, to in fact unleash innovation. There's a reason that I don't think we're very innovative. Actually, if you look at it right now compared to, let's say, the 90s, that's because we have an open platform, the internet. Everything's now, you know, if it was actually really open by now. You know, we're actually in a period of stagnation in that sense, innovatively, I think, and we're in also a period of growing, you know, accelerating inequality. And the source is this. And that, I think, is a huge, huge story. Now, it's a story that you're right, is nil not told that well and people don't see. But I think it's the story of the 21st century, actually. I mean, other than climate change, I think this is the biggest choice of the 21st century is open and close. Now, what you've been missing till now is how do we pay the innovators? Because open, you know, it's free. Well, a new model for paying people that ain't just... Um, it isn't just open source and you give it away. No, you need some model for paying. And that's a model called remuneration rights, which I won't, is in my book. And it's quite a simple idea. And it's not my idea either. It's been around since, well, for a very long time in a way, but it's like the Spotify model in a way. You pay in a subscription, but a subscription via the state regard. And then you give out the money to innovators, or in this case, musicians, based on how much their stuff is used. So you kind of have 
I like to say it's socialism and capitalism have a baby. You know, they go <laughs> together and they have a one night stand and have a baby because the baby is you have the aspect of up payment, you know, like that everyone pays um, in a way, but you have capitalism in that you have lots of competition, you have the free market, you have free choice, you have, you know, freedom to innovate. And I, I think that that's one of the things that's incredible about that information makes possible because it's costlessly copyable. You can have this, everyone can ha- eat as much as they want and we can have the way of paying people who paid for the first copy that cost. So I'm just, to kind of end on, on that point, I just want to really reiterate that the biggest story is this one. Who owns the information age? The answer is everyone can own it. And it doesn't mean I'm taking something away. It can be actually more for everyone. We can still pay the innovators. We can still pay, even if you don't like those pharmaceutical companies, we can still pay for your gates and we can have openness for open access for everyone. And that's possible. Um, and I think that is a win-win story. And the simple point is the story I would see you on this, if you'd gone and talked about environmentalism in 1955, no one would have understood what you're talking about. And that's right now, that's the biggest story. Transparency is a sort of old story. It was a story mm. in 1600. It was a story in 1800. And it does, it's important. Don't get me wrong. It's important. It's valuable. It will keep on being important value. Similarly, privacy was an issue in 1800 when it is in, in Britain about whether the king, whether the, the army could open your letters to check for sedition. But it's not really, but this is a new and massive opportunity because we haven't had an information economy till today. We've had information, but it wasn't till the last 20, 30 years that we really switched into the information economy where it became the dominant aspect of, each of our, what we produce and what we consume. Well, this has been a fantastic sort of segment that you've presented us. And it helps really sort of put into focus a lot of the reasoning and the type of person you are that created open knowledge, because I'm assuming that a lot of these thoughts you've had are drivers for open knowledge, at least back then. You said a little earlier that you think that maybe open knowledge or the Open Knowledge Foundation might need to, to re-examine its mission and its mandate. But let's get back a little bit to some of those early days of open knowledge, because I'm also interested to know some of the mechanics beyond just funding, which is you have this idea. I'm assuming you have a lot of people that are on your side that think it's a great idea, but I'm assuming you also have a lot of people that are like, you know, Rufus, I don't know if this thing has legs. So I'm, I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about that? Like who were so, some of the people that were on your side and some of the, so who were some of the people that, that didn't believe in you as much as possible? And what were the reasons for not believing in what open knowledge, the Open Knowledge Foundation would bring? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously at the beginning, very few people believe in you in many ways because I remember writing to, there's a, I think it was not to be bad, I can't remember it was, um, Oh man, what was the, the name of the, uh, the foundation? But I think oh, it was the guy, the Mellon Foundation, yeah. Again, this polite, I mean, obviously at that point, I also didn't know that you basically never write to funders. Funders, you need to meet a funder and then they ask you to apply or something like that. You don't really write. They always say, oh, send us your application. But I got this polite message back about CCAN. I think I wrote to them in 2000, hey, this is the thing, it'd be really great. And they're like, you know, we're not, we're, we're, you know, at this time, we're not really interested. <laughs> This is a message that I'm learning as well when it comes to grant applications is those cold, essentially the cold call equivalent to a grant application can be very difficult. Yes, it, it doesn't basically you need to, yeah, it doesn't really work. That's the tip. You, basically, you, what you need to do is find someone who's already funded, ask them to introduce you to the fund and have a conversation. If they say they're interested, then you do something. If they say they're not, you kind of forget it. But 
the thing about me i'm very persistent and that's one of my superpowers is that <laughs> um you know like I'm, I'm working on stuff that i started you know i'm still working on secan i still work i started something called frictionless data in 2007 i'm still working on it like today things take a lot of time and you know when people sometimes ask me what it you know i don't think it's anything special but part of it is just persistence if you keep standing for something for a longer period and also try a lot of things i mean um so i don't know at the beginning what, what were people skeptical yeah i mean most people you know, my parents were skeptical. My parents were like, what are you doing? Why do you <laughs> get a real job? Like, why are you, why are you helping support this? Like, it doesn't, when is it ever going to pay you a salary? You know? <laughs> it was a common question. But I found Open Knowledge, to this day, I've never actually been paid by Open Knowledge Foundation. I've never actually received any wow. money. I, I, I found it, when I actually went and became CEO, I was very fortunate that I had a Shuttleworth Fellowship, which is, I should shout out to Shuttleworth incredible organization, incredible team who run it, very small team, but the Shuttleworth Fellowship is just awesome. I recommend people apply to it. You get up to a million dollars to work on your projects. Not, fortunately, not, I didn't get a million dollars, but you get a million dollars to work on the projects. But they did fund me um, for some part of that, and that was amazing. So yeah, that was, that was generally very good. But yeah, the answer is, the answer is at the beginning is, is you know, the other thing is, is you know, find, find your first kind of group. You know, I also want to say there's really a guy he's not he's not listed as a co-founder but i would almost jonathan gray who's he's no longer he kind of advises open knowledge casey and he's now an academic at the king's college london i think king college um you know jonathan joined i think in you know there's a good example jonathan wrote me something i met him at some ip evening in cambridge he kind of had some idea about building his own wikipedia and i was kind of polite like that's never going to happen but anyway you know he went off but he came back like about a year later or something and helped he came down with me to run OKCon. And you've got to understand at this point, I ran Open Knowledge Conference, you know, 80 people would come to, you know, if I was lucky, 50 people came to a warehouse in East London and we laugh about, you know, Jonathan was just an incredible, basically was the co-founder in many ways. You know, he, he believed, um, but he was very skillful. He helped us get our first funding. Jonathan was great, far better than me at understanding what funders wanted, actually, I should say. I'm good about being passionate and, and stuff, but Jonathan was very, uh, even better at listening. And so, you know, and was a really brilliant guy and, 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 and you know, helped do a lot of open government data camp, lots and lots of stuff, and really is my kind of partner in, in creating it. And so I think the other thing is to say, like, you've got to do stuff. I think having concrete projects as well, mm -hmm. like I think advocacy, particularly in our area, advocacy, you haven't got a very clear enemy. You know, it's not like advocacy, you know, someone's being wrongly imprisoned, it, you know, I'm not saying that's, but it's, it's kind of easier to get at, you know, like, ah, oh, we do something. Whereas I think if you're building something, I think that's one of the big things about open source software. So it's one of the reasons that um, we've done, we, we've done advocacy, but we've done a lot more, you know, building things because it is also easy to engage people in that. So that would be my thing. And, you know, people who disagreed with you just argue with them a lot, you know, politely, you know. Uh, we only have about 10 minutes or so left yeah. of our time. And there's a couple of questions that I want to throw at you real quick, which is the very first one is what was your sales pitch for open knowledge in the early days? Like your elevator pitch, you have 30 seconds with someone and you're trying to convince them that what I'm doing is going to be good. It's a great idea. Do you remember what that sales pitch was? At the very beginning was like, we need a home, you know, and this wasn't very effective. We need a home for open knowledge projects. Just to be very clear. That was the, like, Hey, you know about Apache Software Foundation, or you know about the open source definition, or you know about Debian, 
we're building that for data. You know, we're building the Debian of data. And, you know, that, often the short of the sales pitch is, you, you know, we're building the, the Y of X. Like, you know, X, we're doing the Y of it. No, that's, that's it's a really good way to, to present it uh, back then, like the Apache for data, for example. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, yeah. I think Open Knowledge actually had a slightly confusing pitch in a certain way, um, which was, hey, I, because particularly in the transparency side, it was like, hey, open, you know, use technology and use open data. Like there's this huge opportunity that, to use data in this way. I think that was the, the kind of story was like, hey, more, more than content, which you'd have freedom of information, but with these open data sets, we can, we can do innovation. I used to call it the three things. Like, you can have um, innovation, you can have uh, a transparency, and you can have better government, like efficiency, the three horsemen. You know, it's like innovation, efficiency, and transparency. And that's, that's why you do this. And that was the kind of basic story that I had. And that's cheap. The, the next question that I have for you, which is, anytime you're, you're starting something new that doesn't exist, like open knowledge was back in the day, as a founder or the leader of the project, you, you can't help but have doubts. You, you're confident in your abilities and you're confident in the concept, but you may have your doubts in terms of the, the success of the initiative. Was yeah. there a point with open knowledge that you knew you had landed, like we finally have traction on this? Was there like, kind of like a, a moment in particular that was like, yeah, this is here to stay now, we're in? Yeah, I think there was, I mean, there's two points. One was when we got, I think around Open Government Data Camp in 2010, that point, CCAN had kind of taken off, was taking off and you could see that and you were like, okay, hey, um, we've arrived. Today, uh, there were roundabouts, like right at the beginning, like there was, I told you there was this kind of winter, like right at the beginning, you know, even I remember 2007, I went to Creative Commons, used to have an event called Creative Commons International, like 300 people were like, we went to Kuwait, you know, it was beautiful. We went to Dubrovnik. I'd never been to Dubrovnik. Went to Dubrovnik. I just launched Seacan. I'm like, wow, you know, like we just stopped software patents in 2005. And then it was actually like, from that period, like Creative Commons, they disappeared. They didn't do anything internationally. People out of the area. Then from 2007 to 2010 was kind of like a, a kind of lull. 2009, Obama then got elected. You know, it was like, oh, stuff is not really going anywhere. I mean, I remember I wrote this whole recommendation to the UK government in 2007. It was not adopted in any way when it got put in the drawer and then suddenly got pulled out again in 2009. So you go through swings and roundabouts, but around 2010, you know, we really started seeing funding coming through. We saw a lot of attend, you know, open government, you know, it was like people, you can kind of feel like people were like, hey, come and speak at X, come and speak at Y, you know, that, that had not happened before. Nice. Um, so we only have five minutes left. I'm very conscious of your time because you've been so grateful with, with it so far. Is there anything that we haven't had a chance to speak about yet, uh, about open knowledge, some of the work that was required in the early days that you want to make sure that we get in before we close out the episode? I guess what I want to say is I think that right now is like the beginning again. I think story, I think is, it's the inequality and it's the economic opportunity and it's the um, that. Stuff had to happen, but with everything that's come up with the monopolies in the last few years, I think now it's like, what was that moment? You know, 96, right, silent spring. You know, I think mm. this is the moment for us to have, you know, and it's the end. I see you build an environmental movement, but it's not like the environment, but it's like kind of there's a movement for the transformation of this era because, you know, we've never been in an information age before and we've never had this chance to make it open. And that would just be, it would be really transformative, you know, starting economically. And I think actually if I was starting an organization in this area today, I'd be like, 
hey, this is, I want an open knowledge economy. I want an open information society. And this is what I mean. And, you know, I have a new slogan for that. You know, it's like, what is, well, not slogan, but the mission. What's our mission is to make all non-personal information, all software or movies or music or drug formula open and to see that creators and innovators are recognized and rewarded. Mm. And that's the mission. And if, you know, that's a mission for the next 30 years. It's my next, you know, one of my next missions. And so I would be like, that would be what I would be. Yeah, I'd be, I'd say this is the moment to begin again. It's a moment of renewal. It's a moment of opportunity. And it's a darkness before dawn. At the moment, all our systems have got closed again a bit. And, you know, there are lots of inspiration. There's OpenStreetMap and so on. But it's also because it could massively go outside of the bubble we're in. You could go to trade unions. You could go to ordinary politicians. Say, this isn't about digital stuff. This isn't about innovation. This is about Donald Trump. This is about, mm. you know, Brexit. This is about all the populism. This is about um, opportunity for our children, ourselves. You know, this is about innovation. This is about not being kind of owned by, you know, a few tech monopolies in California. You know, like I don't, there's nothing I've got against them. They're not evil, but it just doesn't work. You know, it doesn't, it's not innovative. It's not, doesn't create economic value as it could, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd be like, this is a real moment. And it's like, this is a mainstream issue. And just as it took time to educate people that environmentalism was a mainstream issue. And it starts now. And I think that is the way I would go. This element of renewal you wanted with open knowledge and, is going to take time. And for the last 20 years, it seems like almost 25 years for you, you've been sort of, you know, working that, that, that hammer and, and plowing forward. You're the boy. You're the boy that's plowing, learning about the Bible and learning the English. And you want others as well yeah. to learn the Bible. And so thank you for doing all that work. And thank you for, for joining us today. Thank you. And we live in exciting times. You know, I really, a real privilege and I, and look to uh, you know hearing more. So thank you very much. Oh, it's my pleasure. And uh, as usual, I also want to thank our audience for listening today. And please leave us a rating or a comment on, on how we can make the podcast better or if there's any guests or any stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open. <laughs>